Well, hey, welcome to the very first episode of the Bible Pirate Podcast. My name's Matt Valor. I live in the very southwest of the United Kingdom in a place called Cornwall, which is stunningly beautiful, rugged cliffs, wild seas, golden sands, and a long history of pirates. I have my own long history with the Bible. I grew up in a very religious environment, so I read it a lot. I guess over the years I've left a lot of that religious upbringing behind and left a lot of the theology behind that often shapes why people find the Bible meaningful. But I just haven't been able to leave the Bible behind. I I love it as a story world. I'm just a big fan. And this podcast is going to be about exploring the Bible from the perspective of a fan uh, and how it plays out in the world around us. Today is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in Europe and I wanted to launch this podcast today because of this one idea that still grabs me. I'm not really interested much in the Reformation itself but I am interested in the scale of the change it produced and this idea that Luther said in Latin, sola scriptura, which is by the scriptures alone. And he used that idea to undermine the authority of the church and to put the Bible in the hands of the people to give them the keys to its meaning. Now, we obviously live in such a different society today where the Bible is not understood as the basis of public life. And I certainly don't want to go back to a time where it is. To me, we can understand sola scriptura still. It's still a helpful idea. But we don't see the Bible as a legal text, but as a story world to inhabit everything we know or experience about the world. Everything that seems possible or impossible is defined by the limits of the horizon that we see and experience. And what the Bible did for Luther and the reformers was to create something that somehow seemed beyond the horizon, not necessarily because it took people out somewhere else but it created some kind of new unexpected space within their existing experience of the world and so we've called the subtitle the tagline to this podcast stories beyond the horizon because they're not taking us somewhere else but they're opening up something in the here and now that perhaps could whisper the possibility of change so I imagine this pub in Oxford where Tolkien and Lewis used to meet. C.S. Lewis had written the Narnia series. Tolkien was writing all of his Middle Earth books and they would disagree and debate the nature of this fantasy genre that they were really having a big hand in developing. And Tolkien would criticise, in a friendly way I think, Lewis's use of allegory because you know, if you read Narnia, for example, Aslan is kind of clearly an allegory of Jesus. And Tolkien said it's just too fixed, too forced. He wanted to write history. And that's why all of the Lord of the Rings and the other books around that are just, you know, they've got all these genealogies. They're constantly moving away to deal with some other event and then coming back to the storyline. His view was if you could write a history then in the unfolding of that history is a different kind of meaning that's less clear 
but no less important as a literary experience for people. And Tolkien was really motivated because he wanted to create a mythology for the English people. Uh, Us English, we don't really have any story about where we come from compared to most cultures who do. And so he wanted to create something that the English could look back to and say, this is part of our uh, of our mythology. And so that's why he writes like history. So I also imagine uh, George Martin in that pub, the guy who wrote the Game of Thrones series, because his books are really interesting. He's also written this epic narrative, but each chapter is written from the point of view of a different character. And so it has this quite multi-textured feel to it. Obviously, if you read The Lord of the Rings, you're reading always from the perspective of the narrator. Uh, Whereas in the Game of Thrones series, you're still reading from a narrator, but you see the narrator's point of view is the point of view of the character whose chapter it is. And there's something about that movement between different points of view in an epic unfolding story that creates a different kind of experience. So then I imagine Moses also round the table, a pint of ale in hand, laughing at the others for the small scale of their literary adventures. Because the Bible has its multiple points of view, like the Game of Thrones sagas do, but it's actually from multiple authors in multiple different times and places responding with much more different views of what's actually happening than any of the characters in the Game of Thrones story. And I imagine Moses laughing at Tolkien for his attempt to write historical mythology because because it just comes out of Tolkien's brain. I mean, it's a brilliant brain, but it doesn't work as a mythology for a people because it doesn't come from anywhere either. In the biblical narratives, it's hard to know where history ends and legend begins. I imagine Moses jibing at Tolkien, saying, I've written better history than you, and I probably didn't even exist. This is the world of an unfolding story that at some point finds its way into an actual group of people in an actual time and place, and so does actually work as a historical narrative that in some sense is embedded in the real world even though it's got all of these fantastical things going on that don't seem to bear resemblance to normal everyday life. So I'm just a Bible fanboy, basically. But I have found that people, religious communities particularly, and also the modern nation-state in a very subtle way through its view of tolerance, have created rings around what the Bible can mean ways of interpreting it that just aren't allowed or that seem because they seem offensive and I think that's that's nonsense and in the same way that Luther put the Bible in the hands of the people Bible pirate is partly about stealing the Bible back taking back our capacity to explore all kinds of alternative meanings not for the sake of being alternative but to have the freedom to let this incredible story world of text actually mean to us in this totally, totally different world that we now find ourselves in. So today is not just the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but it's also Halloween. I love the fact those two dates are the same. 
I wanted to go to a Halloween party tonight dressed as Martin Luther, as the spectre of Europe, but was told in no uncertain terms that was not cool and would be like that time I went to a fancy dress party as the European Union's common agricultural policy. Yeah, I did that. Given that it's Halloween, I felt it was only right to uh, remember the fact that the Bible contains the original zombie apocalypse. Uh, And it's one that people generally pretend doesn't exist because it's just too weird. But it's right at the end of Matthew's Gospel. So, I mean, if you really are new to this, I guess I need to say, spoiler coming, but Jesus gets killed. And at that moment, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Firstly, the sky goes dark, there's an earthquake, and then dead people wander out of their tombs and into the city of Jerusalem. It's the original zombie apocalypse. I've been wondering what that means. You know, I find zombies really fascinating because we kind of made fun of them as a culture. I mean, there's all kinds of zombie stories. You know, The Walking Dead is massive cult hit. Game of Thrones has this massive undead phenomenon. Uh, zombies are a real part of us. And we, I think we can't work out whether to take them seriously or not. You know, even the sort of slow-moving, lumbering, you know, parts of a face hanging off, kind of. It just makes me think of uh, third-year Hogwarts, where you go Defence Against the Dark Arts and uh, the boggart comes out of the box and it assumes the shape of the thing that you fear the most. And the way to deal with it, the spell, is ridiculous. Because if you can turn the thing you fear into something that makes you laugh well, then you don't fear it quite so much anymore. And I wonder if that's what we've done with zombies. Because at some level, the idea of the undead, the the creature that can't be killed, is perhaps the most terrifying of all. The idea of undead, of ghosts, of spectres been around in most cultures for most of history because we are haunted by the past you know the opening scene of the walking dead has this police officer shoot a little girl in the head because she advances on him slowly with half her face hanging off and that look in her eyes and even though this really powerful man with a gun is faced by a defenceless little girl, we understand that the terror is too great. The power dynamic is actually what makes this meaningful. It's the question of who haunts us. The man with all the authority and the physical power is haunted by the defenceless. Because the reality is our power and our privilege has victims. And whatever we do to ignore them or seal off the dark places, those victims slowly advance on our consciousness, demanding our recognition. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm a haunted house. I'm fending off zombies every day. So earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus climbs up a mountain further north, from Jerusalem away from the capital city in the heart of this revolutionary region called 
Galilee. And he'd gone to get away from the large crowds and to talk to his disciples. And he says all these things that, in what's become known, a little bit grandly, I think, as the Sermon on the Mount. And he opens them with these words that we know as the Beatitudes. But I'll talk about those in a minute. Let me just track back to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So there's a classic Tolkien-style genealogy to open with. Jesus is descended from Abraham all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Jesus' mother, Mary. It's a bit dull, to be honest. But it does a similar thing to what Tolkien achieves with his genealogies, because it's basically uh, it's basically history. It's a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. And it's in three parts. So the first is Abraham to King David. And then you've got David to the exile and then the exile to Jesus, which is pretty much how the Old Testament is structured. And so after that genealogy, we get these stories about Jesus' birth. And there's the bit about Mary getting pregnant, even though she was a virgin. And then there's the bit about Jesus being born in Bethlehem uh, and the Magi visit him from the east. And there's the bit about Mary, Joseph and Jesus having to flee to Egypt as refugees because King Herod goes on this power crazed baby killing spree. So the thing that I think is often missed in there is that these stories are direct parallels with those three moments in the genealogy. So uh, the big story for Abraham is that he had a son when he was really old and his wife wasn't able to have children anymore. And so Abraham has a miracle child and that's matched by the miracle child of the virgin birth. Uh, the birthplace of Israel's hero, King David, was also Bethlehem. And Jesus is visited in Bethlehem by these foreign leaders who pay him homage as king of the Jews. And then the exile to Babylon and, and the subsequent return from the Old Testament story is described in the Jewish imagination like a second exodus because it was like coming out of Egypt all over again. And Jesus has to flee in exile to Egypt and then return again to the promised land. So these first two chapters of Matthew's gospel are like this incredible work of fan fiction, riffing on the whole Old Testament story to, to drive at this one overwhelming conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that Israel's been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of the whole story so far. Now, the problem with saying that is that we think we know what the word Messiah means. At the time of Jesus, it, it was live with meaning that basically meant revolutionary. I mean, there were all kinds of messiahs coming and going. The, the context into which Jesus is born is one of Roman occupation. It's harsh. It's often violent, uh, military and economic. People have lost their freedom. And... And there's a really powerful theological case for self-rule from the Jewish people. So it's this revolutionary melting pot in which the Roman authorities kind of tolerate this uneasy truce with the Jewish temple establishment in Jerusalem. And they crush any rebellions underfoot and they literally crucify those who defy Caesar. So. By the time Matthew writes this gospel, which is a few decades after Jesus' death, uh, Rome had actually had enough. It just destroyed 
Jerusalem. Uh, it lay in ruins after one of the harshest military campaigns of the whole Roman era. So being the Messiah in first century Palestine was not a straightforward task. So there's a bit more complexity as well. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were divided about how this revolution should take place. So there's a bunch of freedom fighters called zealots uh, who basically function like terrorist cells. I mean, they, they were convinced they should take up arms and fight to defeat the Romans. And then there were the Pharisees, who were these wandering bands of very strict religious teachers who claimed that their God, Yahweh, would bring about the revolution if everybody could just keep the law of Moses, just even for one day. And then there were these people called the Essenes, who had withdrawn to the desert to wait for the revolution, which they believe would happen in this violent, apocalyptic showdown between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. And, and then there were a few collaborators, people in power, really, the Sadducees, who were the temple leaders, uh, the tax collectors, the line of Herodian kings, uh, all of whom had pretty much given up on the revolution because actually the status quo benefited them pretty nicely. So the average Jewish person in Jesus' day was, was trying to make ends meet, avoid Roman oppression where possible, and then also having constantly to negotiate all these different factions, all of whom were re recruiting people to their cause. So in Matthew's Gospel, once we move on from the stories of Jesus' birth, uh, Jesus is then a grown man. He goes to the Jordan River to meet John the Baptist. He's this uh, fiery preacher criticising the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them on their religious oppression and lumping them together, which is offensive to both of them. And then John baptises Jesus in the River Jordan. And, you know, baptism has become, again, this very weak symbol in Christian communities. But in, in first century Palestine, baptism is a political sign. I mean, it's a reenactment for the Jewish people of their escape through the Red Sea with Moses, escape from Egypt. They're liberated from an oppressive empire for a new life in a promised land. So when, when you get dunked in the river, you're basically signalling your defection from Rome. And then after that, Jesus goes off into the desert uh, for 40 days where he's tempted by Satan. He doesn't give in to that and then he returns to Galilee. So that's the bit of the story before Jesus goes up this mountain and says these, uh, does this Sermon on the Mount and says these Beatitudes. And really, I think this story is a way of showing what kind of revolutionary Jesus is not. So he's not a collaborator because a collaborator would never get baptised. He's not a Pharisee because he takes John's baptism and John hates the Pharisees. He's not an Essene. He goes to the desert for a showdown with the powers of darkness, but he doesn't stay there. So it just leaves the zealot. We kind of have this question in the, in the story left there. Is Jesus a terrorist? Is he a freedom fighter for the violent overthrow of Rome? And then he goes up this mountain 
And he says these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, that's the Beatitudes, and it's celebrated as this, I guess, like a sublime moral code, which anyone could live, doesn't matter what your theological beliefs, anyone could live by this. But, okay, I'm not convinced that that really captures what's going on on that mountaintop. So the key to this for me is this Greek word makarios, which is translated as blessed. But it's very hard to replicate all the ways that means in Greek culture. And particularly how a Greek word means in a Hebrew culture. Because makarios has this history in Greek culture of being associated with the happiness and the prosperity of the gods. Those uh, rich, powerful people who have got a life of near godlikeness. And then in the Hebrew worldview, a blessing is more like an invocation. And so the opposite to a blessing is not just like you're unhappy or you're unfortunate. It's like you're cursed. And so the way that Matthew writes these words, uses the word makarios, to me it's more subversive. Because it's not just saying nice things about people who are finding life a bit tricky. It's invoking blessing on a way of life that people are generally understood to be the complete opposite of the Macarius life. And by implication, it curses the life of the gods. So we, we understand this today, right? I mean, Donald Trump is the classic Macarius. I mean, maybe not the athleticism, but, you know, born into wealth, inheriting power, and then kind of adding the US presidency to his collection. The world is really influenced in a context of growing inequality by this group of super rich people who meet with world leaders at Davos every year. These are the Makarios, the people who carry the life of the gods. But in Jesus' version of the Makarios, it's, that's the life that's cursed. The zombie apocalypse that happens when Jesus dies is a way of making sense of some of this. Right, so the early chapters set up this question, right? Is Jesus a zealot? Is he this kind of terrorist freedom fighter? And the answer in the Sermon on the Mount is no, he's not. Because Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who are oppressing you. Resist violence, but not with violence. Resist violence with love, creativity and courage. But there is a reason, I think, that the zealots are the ones 
left till last. Because the religious sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, they all prey on the weakest. They scapegoat the vulnerable for the lack of revolution. I mean, the zealots at least menace the powerful. They're not so far off. Okay, so let's go to the middle of the story. And Jesus goes up another mountain and with him are Moses and Elijah. And according to the tradition, the Jewish tradition, neither Moses or Elijah died. They were both taken up to heaven. But here they are. They're shimmering on this mountain in Galilee. The spectral undead from Israel's past come to call time on the present. And then right to the very end, Jesus has suffered. Crucifixion is such a shaming, drawn out death. He's an innocent man unjustly executed by the state. And yet, as that zombie army descends on Jerusalem, he returns to the mountains of Galilee to haunt the powers that sold him and beat him and killed him. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not like the Messiah that anyone was expecting. He is a revolutionary, but he's not. his revolution isn't like anyone was expecting. He takes on the powerful of the day, the Roman and Jewish uh, collaboration with creative, non-violent resistance. And in doing that, he's invoking the spectre of a different kind of world. Because far more threatening than weapons, which Rome was always going to win with, far more threatening than that, are the ghosts of the oppressed, who return to haunt the powerful because they can't be killed. And so they remain a permanent reminder of the illegitimacy of the system and its oppression. So it's a non-violent revolution, but it's more terrifying than all the tools of war. And it begins on that first mountain with Jesus and his disciples and a new community with a blessing for the undead. So I wanted to retranslate these words of Jesus as an invocation that calls time on the Macarios life of the gods, of those people with too much wealth and power who shape the world we live in that is causing so much suffering to so many to invoke the spectre of the undead that out of the darkness come a whole host of people with a claim on justice. Here come the depressed. They own the future. Here come the grieving. They will be comforted. Here come the enslaved. They will have the whole earth. Here come the ones who are starved of justice. They will be filled. Here come the gracious. They will be shown grace. Here come the uncorrupted. They will see God. Here come the peacemakers. They will be protected. Here come the oppressed. They own the future. Here you come, you oppressed. You wrongly accused. Take heart. They did this to your heroes whose ghosts will not die. 
I ask myself, where am I in all this? Because the spectre is a menace, but only if you're the powerful. The demand for justice is only a threat to those who won't give it. If you're powerless to those who need the revolution, I think of the spectre as that dazzling white of the transfiguration. And that's the kind of flip side of the Beatitudes. It's the side that's always out of reach to those who cling to power. There is an alternative that's invoked by the undead and made real by the Holy Spirit as a ghoul of death for a world that's passing away, but breath of life for a world that's coming into being. I guess we all feel our own powerlessness. We are all powerless in the face of death. But some of us do have more power than others. I feel conflicted personally in my own response to the Beatitudes when I think of them as an invocation for the undead. And I'm haunted on this Halloween. There's something about the zombie in the image of the pirate spectre of darkness emerging from the mist the funny face on the jolly roger there to make you laugh until suddenly it's too late it's my hope that this bible pirate podcast can be some fun exploration of the ways in which our lives are shaped by the biblical stories that have woven themselves into our world and the opportunity to explore a different world beyond the horizon but that also, like the pirate and the zombie, we ourselves, me included, can be haunted by the spectre of death because the world continually needs to die in order to be reborn. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Join me again next time on Bible Pirate for more stories beyond the horizon.